Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specializing in protective outerwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life, visit roadskin.co.uk. Welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 748 for November 13th, 2023. I am your host, Jim McDowell. With me, as always, from merry old England, Richard Jowd. Richard, how are you doing today, sir? Very good, thank you, Jim. Yeah, looking forward to talking about Sepang as we get to the, let's call it the business end of the season. Yeah, I thought you'd be more excited about getting on a plane and heading to Qatar, but... Well, never super excited about waiting around in airports and stuff, but no, very much looking forward to Qatar, and I'll perhaps just, uh, what's the word, tease up what I think is going to happen, best laid plans and all that, so we'll get we'll get into that in a minute. Yep. Alrighty, folks. We're, uh, we've got some really good listener feedback that has come in in the last couple of days, um, one from Scott Baldwin, one from Chris Boyce. Rich, I'll let you cover Chris's questions first, and uh, then I'll take on Scott's. Yep. Okay. So thank you, Chris. Uh, great email. I won't read it out word for word. Uh, just to press you this, um, Chris is, like we do often, Jim, is rather annoyed by the amount of loitering that goes on in the MotoGP field during practice and particularly qualifying as people kind of hang around on a live track waiting for a tow. So the, the key point that Chris makes, and I think you'll have a strong opinion on this, Jim, is why not enforce the 107% rule uh, or whatever the minimum lap time percentage is for qualifying? Uh, they could take the top time from practice, since that's the session that decides who goes through to the qualifying two. Anyone who doesn't complete, uh, well, he says in and out laps, obviously they're, they're different, but anybody that is not on an in or an out lap should be within the 107% time. And he says, I feel like that would do several things. It would no longer be a judgment call by the stewards. Either you're under that time, that 107% time, or you aren't. It would mean everyone is all business when they're out on a hot track, so they're loitering around waiting for the, you know, somebody to follow. And it would shift all the shenanigans to the pit. True, but at least it wouldn't be happening on the track. So there'd still be people waiting around, clock watching as they do. But yes, we wouldn't have people potentially getting in each other's way. So it's, yeah, using the 107% rule, which I think still exists as a cutoff. If you don't make that time, then you don't get to race, which we hardly ever see nowadays. That was more when you had kind of less qualified wildcard or guest riders coming in. So what do you think of that idea, Jim? Because we've moaned about the, well, I mean, there's a lot of it's been pointed at the likes of Marquez, hasn't it, in recent times. But, you know, just hanging around on a live track and the potential of a collision taking place yeah there this one's this is an interesting solution to a problem that i think we all agree is is becoming a problem yeah i Uh, should say jim can i just say um chris quite rightly points out and we said the very same thing last week which is that the 
Moto2 and certainly the Moto3 riders do get heavily penalised for this. So we see lots of long laps or going to the back of the grid or whatever. But I think I was moaning about this on the last show that the MotoGP riders seem to get away with this. Uh, and I think we said, didn't we, that they'll get away with it up until the point at which there's a nasty accident. And then, you know, there'll be a knee-jerk reaction and they'll do something stupid that spoils the overall format. So that's kind of why Chris is addressing the issue with a, what I think is a very good solution. Yeah, I, I think it is too. Um, now, a, cu- a couple of things, and I'm not I'm not nitpicking here, but I think it's only 105% because I remember Simon saying something about that in Thailand, that one of the Thai riders in Moto2 wasn't allowed to continue because he didn't reach 105%. I know that that rule exists for Moto3 and Moto2, but I don't think it exists for MotoGP. And I think it's because there's such a limited number of riders. Dorner it wants to, used to. It used I, to exist, but whether it still does. I yeah. think it, I, I remember back when we were in the CRT days, right? Mm-hmm. And that was to keep, that was, that was there so that I think it was at least good equipment that showed up. So I, I, and by that, I mean, I don't think they wanted people rocking up with a Yamaha R1 Superbike and trying to qualify for a MotoGP race. So they yes, kind of, yeah. they set the bar to where it was like 105%. So you, you had to have a very highly tuned M1, if you will. Like somebody had yeah. to have put some serious money into this to get it to be there. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're talking like million dollar Euro leases for for uh, MotoGP bikes or satellite teams. They didn't want somebody rocking up with a $300,000 super bike. You, you know, they want it, they want it good equipment. So I think that's where, where that part of it started. Now, whether it's still there or not now, I'm not 100% sure on it. But I like the idea because, hey, look, as soon as you go out of the pits, you start. You've got however long it's going to take you to get from point A back around to the timing light. And then you better be on it from that point for to maintain this this 105%, which is a good idea. However, we see most of the shenanigans actually technically happen on that outlap. So it's a great idea in theory. And I, I applaud the, the thought that was put into this, but I don't know if it fixes the problem. Because I think you're still going to see it. You could address the outlap, however, by just having a, I don't know, say 120%, i.e. it wouldn't be fair to expect them to go out on a tyre that's not fully warm and set 107 or 105, whatever, all hour uh, time. But you could say you must still hit these vectors, a bit like, you know, again, we have this in, you know, the ball fest that is modern day Formula One, but there is precedent for that. And given the dash readouts and stuff that they have on the bike, they could be kept informed how far in or out of the target time they were thinking about that to me why don't you have it set by like you, once you raw the pitch you have to get to sector two by a certain time you have to be oh, to yeah. sector three by a certain amount of time and i think that's a little more realistic because what that would do at least in my mind's thinking as that first sector would take you a while because you're trying to warm the bike up the tires up brakes up but by the time you get to that third sector you better be basically on it to be able to get through the fourth sector to be able to get to that lap time. So yeah. I think if you did it like that, then yes, I think this could really be a great solution to it to keep everybody going. But you know, somewhere somebody's going to bemoan something and they're going to hate it and they're it, it and it's not going to do it. But as a thought exercise, this is actually a really, really good idea. And I yeah. do like it a lot. I, I just think there's a lot of 
no matter what you do, <laughs> this is kind of like Formula One. I think we bemoan this too, Rich, is that <laughs> you can give a group of engineers a rule book and they will scrutinize every last bit of that rule book to find every last advantage that they could ever possibly find in it. And they will suss out every weak point that you have in this. And it, I, I think you could also just simply be, here's the writer's meaning is like, no more dawdling on the lap on your, no more dawdling, no more looking for toes. If you're offline and you're, you better have a bike that's got a problem as opposed to, you know, that. And if you start finding the guys, if you start penalizing them that, Hey, your fastest lap you turn is now gone. So think about it. Let's just make the example. Marquez is being towed around. It's in Q1. He's, at, he is now second quick behind whoever and there's won't enough for time for one more lap left and oh by the way he was dawdling when before he ever did that lap well that lap's gone so now he doesn't he doesn't move from q q1 to q2 and you could easily do that too i think i think that's the penalty that you really have to impose upon these guys especially in the in the, in the capability in q1 is like you're dawdling we know you're dawdling you do not get your fastest lap time and from what we've yeah. seen, you really only get one good chance on, on a tire, maybe two. But the problem then is you you're not treating the guys. And you could do the same thing in the Q one in the Q two session, right? You, you you could conceivably have somebody who dawdled, was on pole because they were being towed, and then you say, nope, that lap time's canceled because they do it with track limits. If you are exceed track limit uh, exceed track limits, you get dinged instantly. That lap is gone. So I think it's a great, I think if you did a combination of 105 sectors and you penalize people by taking their fastest lap away, I think you'd solve it almost instantly there. That's it. And this is not really aimed at stopping people trying to pick up a tire. I mean, that's just part of racing and always has been, whether it's two wheels or four. This is specifically about stopping people yeah, riding very slowly, sometimes cutting across the track, across a live kind of racing line in a way that's very dangerous, given how fast these bikes are going and how quick you know the closing speeds are it is a, an accident waiting to happen so i do feel like they need to do something because as we talked about i think in the last show jim i mean we don't want an accident to happen and they say okay now it's single lap format one at a time you know, that would just be utterly turgid uh, and would not be a good development and there's yeah. a sort of knee-jerk reaction that you could envisage happening if something bad happened so yeah appreciate the thought chris it's a really good one yep appreciate the thoughts chris uh so let's move on to scott baldwin's uh email uh, again appreciate the accolades scott for the show really appreciate that uh, i like the fact that you like sort of the engineering insight that i try to bring to the show so i appreciate that thank you very much but scott's main point that he's trying to say is hey just read that aprilia uh had been banned because they had an automatic clutch and so the question then becomes what is this automatic clutch and what, what, why is KTM complaining about Aprilia having it? What, what, what's the whole deal that's going on in here? And it is a, it is a convoluted tale of woe that I must say that I, I went down the rabbit hole for a long time with this to try to understand all of what was going on. And I will endeavor here to try to piece it together in a way that everyone will understand and get. So, Early on in the year, we were talking about how KTM was having these absolutely fantastic starts, Rich. Remember, we were talking about that. And I speculated 
that they were manipulating the clutch via some of the hydraulic units that were being used to raise and lower the rear ride height. They just would simply manipulate the clutch so that it would bite and go. Turns out that is what basically they were doing. Okay, If you read, there's an article that exists on, uh, where's the really good one? I think it's on, uh, I got this one from uh, Autosport has a good one that sort of explains the rules and stuff on there. So if you search for automatic clutches in MotoGP for Autosport, there's a great article. Crash.net has another good one that's there as well. And there's one from Motorsport that also has some details. So this is kind of where I, where I got all of this. But what they were doing initially is they were like a formula. They said how it's like a Formula One clutch. Well, a Formula One clutch, they do these practice starts. And what they do is they have the car learn the bite point. Given X amount of grip and wheel spin at the first point, they then use an algorithm in the computers of the car to set the bite point of the clutch. So then it's still the driver holding the clutch and letting go of it at the green light. But as soon as the clutch is let go from the paddle clutch, the car then reacts and corrects itself and feeds in the appropriate amount of clutch to give them the optimum start with no wheel spin. What KTM was doing, and I went back, I looked at some of these back like Porto Mayo, the early races. If you watched practice sessions, you would see Bender and Miller stop. They would set the, the, the ride height device, the whole shot device, then they would start flicking. They were, they were, you could see two fingers moving on the clutch and a thumb moving. And what I think they were doing was they were telling the bike as they fed the clutch out and would start to grab, they would push a button and that sets the bite point for the clutch. Now the bike knows where this is. And they would do that like when they took off from a, a warm up lap to get back around to the grid. When they came to the grid, they'd set all this stuff and then they'd let it roll a little bit to find the bite point and they'd hit this button and that would set the bite point. So what would happen then is they could let the clutch go and the bike then using the hydraulics on the bike would uh, let the clutch bite and then slip the clutch as it went along and TC's checking to see if the wheel is spinning or not. And you can then basically create this wicked start. There is some one of these articles they talk about Miller going past one of the Ducatis with a V sign up. So his left hand isn't doing anything. So it's that's what they're they're talking about. Now, I think that at that level, when that happened with Miller on the KTM, KTM took it off because I think they got told by the rules makers that be that's a fully automated system. Because now what had happened was that they weren't using and setting the bite point by hand anymore. They were simply testing it as they took off in the computer in the bike was noting where that point was. So now it's not a it's not a uh, an analog system. It has just the computer setting the bite point and then Miller just throws a clutch. That's kind of what the system was developed by Aprilia. KTM having been told, "Hey, this is outside the lines." And I think it was MS the who who is it it's Erda is in charge of the teams, right? Rich, yeah, yeah. Erda Erda controls yeah. the teams and controls yeah. sort of the rules. I think some people from Erdo looked at what KTM did and they kind of walked over and said, look, guys, you're on a gray area here. Let's not go down this path. Can you please just take this back to the more analog system where it's being used by hand and not being fed through the electronics of the bike? I think KTM kind of went, okay, but then we're going to be the same for everybody, right? And Erdo kind of agreed. Now, this is all my speculation here. This is, this is purely me speculating. I think Erdo said, yeah, we'll police everybody else. 
Meanwhile, Aprilia had collected this system, figured it out, and had figured out the same thing KTM had figured out, to which Aprilia had some great starts like Barcelona and a few races before there. And then all of a sudden it got bad for them again when they did the flyaways because KTM went, hey, Erda, you told us we couldn't have that. We think Aprilia's got the same thing. And if we can't have it, they can't have it. So you need to tell them to take it off their bike, which basically the rules makers came to Aprilia, said, no, you can't have that on your bike. And it got taken away. So that's what's going on is again, it's just simply, we are using some methodology to manipulate or find where the bite point for the clutch is. We're using trash control and a loop to decide how much wheel spin we get. And we're fundamentally taking the human out of it for the launch of the motorcycle. Now we're still changing gear by our feet and we're doing that manually and all that stuff that's there, but that's the part that was there. So now I think they've sort of moved it back to where, okay, you have to feather the clutch out with your hand to get that start again. I don't, I think you can kind of maybe still do that set the bite point by hand kind of thing, but it's still going to take you to get it to that point. At least it's going on. Now what's also interesting about this is in my search for all these automatic clutches and stuff, I stumbled across a article that was three days old at the time, which yesterday was three days old. It was from Honda. It's on the mcnews.com.au. And it says, Honda previews the first e-clutch for motorcycles with conventional manual gearbox. And in that, what they do is Honda uses an electronic clutch to where you can basically put it in gear and rev the bike up and it will go. Their idea is that it allows people who can't really manipulate a clutch and a throttle together very well. So they don't have to worry about the clutch part of it. They can just turn the throttle part on and the bike just simply goes. And if you go to this mcnews.com.au and you look for the Honda gearbox, like the e-clutch gearbox, it's got a pretty good explanation of what's going on. Got a pretty good example of what's happening to make that clutch actually work. And it's really a pretty neat little video that they have of it all. So I suggest you go there to look at that if you really want to see what's coming. Because I got a feeling that if it's on a production bike and Honda has it, next year it'll be on their race bike. And they're going to mm -hmm. argue, why can't we have this on here? So wait for that battle to show up. But that is all that I can tell you about the auto clutches, the automatics that we have. And it's probably coming to that. And I... And Scott makes a point that he wants it to be manual. He wants it all to be very manual. I agree with him. I would prefer it to be all manual. But, you know, the same thing could be said. The same argument can be said about rod height devices and all that, that, hey, you're, you're, you're not, you're taking the rider sort of out of this equation. And, you know, he, and Scott says he really wants it all out. He wants all the aerodynamic stuff off of the bikes. I don't blame him. Again, I think we've had this discussion, Rich, and I think it's well out there. Hey, it's yeah. going to take somebody, unfortunately, I think getting hurt by a wing that fell, fall off, falls off. And if we saw the warm up lap to this week's Malaysian GP, Jorge Martin's bike had another winglet problem where it came off again and they were putting a new one on, on the grid before they start the race. It's getting to the point now that it's starting to get really scary. That's two races in a row that we've had a problem with a little winglet falling off of a motorcycle. And it happens to be Jorge Martins each time. My theory on why it's always Jorge Martin is that Martin leans over the farthest of anybody. And I think he can touch yeah. things that other riders can't touch. And I think it's just enough to put it. All it takes in a piece of carbon fiber is one little crack. 
because it's designed to be loaded in a specific direction and the other direction it's not it's not designed to take that punishment so who knows where that's going to go but that's the tech segment for this week guys hopefully you enjoyed hopefully you liked it scott and appreciate the email yeah i mean obviously i've got nothing to add to your engineering oversight on that jim i mean you've explained that um really really well uh even i, I can kind of understand what you're saying which is saying something but the evidence actually is in the results because Aprilia and KTM both do appear to have slipped back a bit. And in modern day MotoGP, where qualifying and or getting off the line well, in terms of being in that first, what, I don't know, three or four positions because of tyre pressure, which is another problem which we're going to come to. Perhaps, you know, the fact that maybe they, they've been stymied a little bit with this clutch technology, if that is indeed true, and obviously some of this is, is speculation, that would help to explain why Aprilia in particular, not KTM quite so much, but certainly Aprilia have really gone backwards in the last third of a season, I would say. So that may well coincide with them having been running this auto, semi-auto clutch, whatever you want to call it, and then being told, no, that's about to be protested and you'll be forced to take it off so you do yourself a favor and just do it for yourself so that does kind of make some some sense but the last thing i just wanted to mention uh, jim because at the end of scott's email as you just alluded to you know he goes on the tirade that we've been on many times before <laughs> you know let's have smooth sided fairings let's not have ride height devices uh, ride height devices rather and a whole shot devices and all this sort of stuff and i always come to an interesting or problematic kind of conclusion with this well, A, there's what some of our listeners have told us before. I'm thinking of people like Alan Fleming, for example, who was very, very strong in his position that, no, no, this is prototype race. And if there's a something allowed within the rules and a team exploits it, that's the whole nature of prototype racing. And of course, you can't argue against that. But the thing that kind of flummoxes me a little bit is that if you take a modern Superstock 1000 bike, Arguably, it's as technologically advanced, certainly from a software point of view and ride rider sort of aids point of view. It's more advanced now than what MotoGP are up to in some respects, because obviously the ECU is, is so much more kind of managed now. So there's that aspect. And then if you take the view, as I do, that kind of the, the really wild aero devices that we're seeing are not going to trickle down to road bikes. And I certainly see no reason why... I, you know, a ride height device would ever find its way onto a road bike, even a you know an expensive super bike. I just don't see what purpose it serves. So it kind of makes me think. It's kind of like a what's the word? An existential threat to the sport in the sense that if the if the bikes or the manufacturers are there to develop stuff that goes onto road bikes, but they've kind of hit the blocks now where really nothing else can do, and the road bikes that they're already making are in some areas as if not more advanced than the race bikes. You kind of do worry what's in it for the manufacturers, don't you? Other than the whole win on Sunday, sell on Monday kind of thing. But we don't really necessarily believe that that's quite the force that it was once upon a time either. So it does make you wonder whether this will come back to a, a kind of slightly scaled back, kind of just pure racing thing rather than this pseudo development test bench, which I'm not sure that it is anymore for the reasons I've just sort of ham-fistedly tried to explain. I see your point, man. I really, I really do. It's like, okay, yeah, World Superbike, the, the electronics there are far more sophisticated than what they are in MotoGP. So it's like, hey, if, the, if you want to develop an ECU for a street bike, you're going to go do it over in World Superbike, and then that trickles onto the bike that you buy. 
okay, yeah, if you're going to give somebody a 1,000cc bike and 280 horsepower, roughly, you're going to have to give them some aids to make it so that they can survive on it. Yeah. I mean, I would even need something to help me because there's a whole lot there, and I'd probably be in trouble real fast. So, I, you know, do we need that? Or I, I don't know. The ride high thing, I'll disagree with you because our friends in Australia had wrote a letter long ago and said, hey, look, I only stand five foot five. Think about how many more people could could ride a bike if it was capable of them coming to a stoplight stop sign to lower the ride height so they could have both feet on the ground and not be tippy toe. Okay, I'm with you there. I'm 100% behind that one. Okay. Mm-hmm. As, as long as point. it's a, and that's a fair point, and I, I totally get it. But it's at some point, you're going to have to, there's something that have to be done because it can't become modern day formula one in the essence that like, it's what bike you have as opposed to what the rider can do with the bike. And how do you, and it's like, the worst thing is, is they just say, Oh, it's going to be spec racing, spec chassis, spec tire, blah, blah, blah. Like okay, you do already. If you don't think everybody's mm-hmm. not copying what everybody else has got, you're, you're, you're stupid, but you do can tell a difference at least in the engines when they go by they sound different so at least well, we have that but at, at some point it's just the cost of developing these things is going to is going to be what's going to ride this out they're going to be written out of the rule book underneath some sort of cost savings or safety measure because it's just not going to work anymore well and your point about uh, aerodynamic appendages you know c- coming off or the risk of them coming off and it stands to reason that the kind of the colin chapman approach will start to prevail on this where you go lighter and lighter you know to try and extract some advantage in terms of weight distribution or whatever and of course that is obviously a dangerous route as well so yeah i don't know i mean there's no easy answer to any of this is there really um but i think it may have been in the email that we were just alluding to there that scott wrote but you know Many people make the point that if everybody's got a ride height adjusting device, nobody's really got an advantage anymore. Although you quite rightly pointed out in the last show that some of them appear to work better than others. Right. Uh, but that's an operational thing. True. But true. If everybody's got them and it's making the bikes faster and, you know, arguably unsafe, uh, as well as the fact that they're dangerous if they fail, then you do start to see, you know, the banning them on safety grounds thing coming to the fore. I mean, honestly, if if you want to play this game the right way, in in my mind, my simpleton thing, the first thing I would ban would be carbon fiber brakes. I would remove that. Like you don't get them anymore. So okay, when you do that, now it's a much longer braking zone, which means now we can see the people who can brake later and can turn on the front. And the people who can do that are going to be the ones that are going to be faster. They're going to be able to pass people because you've lengthened that space. So who cares if you got a ride height to go accelerate faster or not now? Because everybody can't stop like the same. And that's really going to put a lot of skill back into is who can manage, you know, manage that braking. If you did it, if you just said, no, it's iron discs and you can, and that's it, you're done. So is that going to, and the thing of it is, is that really going to hurt a lap time? I don't think so. Because oh, no, it wouldn't bother me. Because no, if you remember Malaysia, when we first showed up there, I think in 99, 2000, maybe I, the, it was early on. It was very late yeah. 90s. I know probably Formula around about that. Yeah. I know Formula One was there in 99. I'm assuming MotoGP was there probably like in 2000 or something, or maybe early 99, whatever. Um, I think the first laps for a MotoGP bike were 202s. Now we're at 157s. 
What, what were they racing at? Two minutes, two minutes, one. Yeah. You can't, and you can't tell it from the TV, can you? And trackside, you cannot tell that difference. Not really. No. I mean, I think you could, I think you could maybe, maybe tell if they had to lengthen their braking zone. Cause I think you'd see riders sit up sooner, but you'd have to be paying really close attention to it. I don't think any of us would complain that we make MotoGP or whatever two seconds slower per lap if there's three guys at the front battling tooth and nail for it. I think we'd think it's the greatest race that we've ever seen. Yeah. Well, as we're about to say, and as we've said, almost without exception, well, not every race this season, but I'm going to confidently say at least two thirds of the races this season, the best race has been the Moto3 race. Easily. You know, okay, they're not going as fast and they're not as spectacular in that sense. That's true. But it's damn good racing. It is. uh, You know, the clue's in the title. You you know, so watching people going around separated by two or three seconds because they can't risk getting their front tyre over pressure, although some people notably didn't manage that. Uh, (laughs) Is that good racing? I'm, you know, I'm really not convinced that it is now. I think we've come to a point where something needs to change. Anyway, we'll come to that in a little while. All right. So guys, appreciate the feedback, the letters. If anybody else has anything they want to know or comment on the show, please do write us motopod at motopodcast.com. And with that, Rich, I think we'll get into the weekend's events and we'll do that by starting with, oh, I guess let's start with some news. I guess that's the first thing I mean, we'll get into is the news. So these are, this is a fun, this is the fun time here. The first thing is, is that uh, with MotoGP, it is now heavily rumored that Marini is going to be going to HRC to take this spot vacated by Mark Marquez. I think that's a great choice to put on the bike. I, I personally think that I think the, I think of, I think there are four riders on the grid that I think are, that are extremely good at bike development. Agree or disagree with me as I take these out. Miguel Oliveira. I think he's very good at setting a bike up and getting the most out of a bike that he has. I think Zarco is an incredible development rider. I think he can feel small differences about what makes the bike better and can get you, you know, he's good at throw parts at him and he will tell you which parts are which and et cetera. After that, I think Marini is probably the next best guy because he's always within himself and gets the maximum out of the bike once he gets the bike to where he wants it. And then from there, it's a toss-up. It's a toss-up at that point. But I think that maybe maybe Bender is the next one. But that's, I, I'm not too sure there. Just because I think Bender has done really well with the, the carbon fiber chassis that KTM has developed. So if I'm Honda and I can't get – or sorry, Rins. I didn't say Rins. Rins is the guy I was thinking of. Yeah, Rins is. A, I think he's Rins a, or Bender. Yeah. I think is a toss up. I I, I could go either way, right? Rins and yeah. back forth. When Rins is allowed to set the bike up, he can do really well. I give you Texas this year, right? He took a bike that had no reason being anywhere near the podium and made it win, made a win out of it. Yeah, he got help, but I think he's there. So they obviously tried to keep Rins. He decided to leave. Nope, not doing it. They tried to go after Oliveira. Said no, it's two years or nothing, and no, you've got a contract to stay here at RNF. We're not playing this game. So where are you going to go? That left you with going to Marini or Bender or or those. And like, okay, you're not taking Bender out of this KTM contract. It's ridiculous. So Marini is like your last chance. So I think that's interesting. The I question, mean, sure. Sorry. Well, no, I was no, just no, going to no. say, Jim, Marini makes an awful lot of sense 
from the HRC point of view, what I am scratching my head at is how much sense it makes for Marini to go there. I mean, that's the bit yeah. that doesn't quite add up to me. I haven't read them. I noticed just before we came on to record uh, a tweet from David Emmett, who has written, is that uh, which publication does it? Motor Matters. No, it doesn't matter. Motor Matters, thank you. I think he's got an article up sort of describing the background to this Marini thing, which it sounds as if this has been on the go for actually for quite a while trying to get this to happen so there's obviously a lot of background to this and so things will add up ultimately and we'll all go oh yeah but right now in terms of when I first heard that I thought what it just didn't make and I'm, I'm still kind of shouting out loud like that because I don't really see why Marini gets off the Ducati of his half brother's team unless that's reason in of itself to get out from that shadow perhaps and he has been outclassed by Bezeki for the most part this year. That's true. But to jump on that Honda at the moment, I mean, it is a poison chalice for whoever does it. Just ask Joan Mir. So it's, yeah, it really caught me unawares because, I mean, we should just, not this will be news to any of the listeners, but obviously in recent weeks, we've had Fabio Di Giantonio sort of very strongly linked with that ride. And that one certainly made a lot of sense to me and a lot of sense to him because he's out of a ride. And and then over the weekend, although this was quashed by HRC pretty firmly and quickly, the rumour of Fermin Aldeguer going there. It sounds as if that might have been more the Aldeguer camp kind of trying to make that one a bit of a new story. Although interestingly, as we were to say, that he might potentially slot in elsewhere, which would make more sense. Because again, putting Aldeguer on a HRC at his age, with his relative lack of experience, despite his obvious world-class credentials, as, as he's now demonstrating, that would have been a potentially career-ending career misstep, in my opinion. So, yeah, that was my initial thoughts on the Marini thing. But, yeah, it's a really, really strange one to me. Yeah, I agree. But the question then, because if, if Marini does leave VR46 for whatever reason, I mean, hey, some people want to ride for a factory. Okay, you know, I I can't say that if, that if when I was running around with club, if, if somebody would have, you know, said, hey, here we'll, we'll give you a you'll give you a support ride with Kawasaki. Like I wouldn't have signed it. I would have. I would have thought twice about it. So I can understand. Just there's that allure. Okay. So that's there. The question then becomes who replaces Marina Vier Four Six? Well, Outiger is supposedly the man who is going to take that place there. I can see that if you're gonna if you're going to go to MotoGP, I think it's kind of m- makes it better for you to be on a Ducati and in one of their satellite teams riding a year old bike. Cause there's a ton of setup data over here and you can work on yourself for that first year, try to get better your second year, put yourself in the window for going to whatever may happen is there. So I could see that. So that's that part of it. Uh, although, although Jim, I've still got issues with that. I still have issues because, um, Aldig is not part of the VR46 setup, which so that's a bit weird. Digi Antonio, who is Italian and is, is really starting to show some form on a Ducati, would be a much more sensible choice. And again, I still come back to the point that Aldiger is, is clearly world world class, and he's really shown that in the last two races. And he won at Silverstone earlier in the season, so this is not a surprise that he's getting tapped up by various teams, but he's still very, very young. And another year in Moto2 certainly wouldn't do him any harm whatsoever. The cynic in me and the little troublemaker in me wonders, because 
you know, it's not Valentino Rossi, I know, but it's his half-brother going to Honda. I wonder how much input Rossi had on that, unless part of the deal is that NSR 500 comes over to Tavulia. <laughs> Stranger things might have happened, so, because he still wants it. I know he does. I, I, I would want mine too. I would. I, I cannot believe that Valentino Rossi has not been heavily involved in the discussions over if Marini does make that move. But yeah. Do, do you agree? I mean, I can't see that I, that would be done in complete isolation. And we know what the history there is between, you know, Rossi and Honda or HRC. So, hmm. I, I cannot in any way, shape or form believe that Rossi is not coaching this in some way. Like, I, I, I get that Rossi owns the team now. But the question becomes, in my mind, Rossi could let Marini go if Dorna gives him something that he wants. Okay, yeah. if, you get, if you get a little extra money from Dorna because you let Marini go, I don't know. I mean, Rossi is not going to want for anything. He doesn't need anything, but... I, I agree. There's something there. I, again, it's not confirmed. It's a rumor that's running around. I don't think we're going to know who's going to be on that bike until maybe the Valencia test. And even then, I don't know if we know that the person who may be on it is going to be the person who's going to be running around on it. I still, I don't know. I, I have this envisionment that that pole goes back to that seat, but I, I, I can't imagine he does it. But somehow I'm thinking that that's going to happen, and I, I don't I don't think it's going to happen, but I'm going, well, that seems like a logical thing to do, but I, you know, what do I know? Well, sorry, and sorry, Jim. Yeah, I mean, that was the other story that broke over the weekend, wasn't it? Or on Sunday morning, Alberto Pooch was being interviewed by one of the Dorna people, I think, Jack Appleyard probably. Yeah. And the whole, yeah, poll is, you know, firmly in position or under consideration, at least, for the ride. So that one broke as well. So it was another name that sort of went into the mix. So... Oh, it's, it's really interesting. It's great kind of um, fodder for us to chat about. But this is obviously, as you just quite rightly said, none of this is confirmed. Although the Marini deal is being mentioned by the likes of Simon Patterson, you, you know, you David Emmett, people that are fully clued in and have very, very high level sources that are reliable for the most part, I'm sure. They're all saying it's a done deal. So, and it's been a done deal for a little while. But that does rather put, put into question why some of these other names have been banded around over the last week or two. Who knows? I mean, it's all politics, right? It's all politics. So, you know, and there's given given get going on and I don't want to say shady stuff going on behind closed doors and the back of the pit boxes, but, you know, this much there is. Thing. So there is an <laughs> element of that going on. Of course there is. The other thing that was happening in the pits this weekend was the fact that could Jorge Martin find himself on the factory Ducati next to, next to Ben Yaya, provided he wins the world title? And would then Bastianini be sent to Pramac? I don't know about that. I mean, they had, uh, I can never say his name, Chipotle, uh, the um, guy. Paolo Chipati. Chipati, that's it, Chipati. I can't imagine, you know, he, he threw high octane fuel in the fire going, well, we would be stupid not to consider that. Oh, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I I I think that there's a happy go lucky part of Benyai that enjoys the fact that Bastianini is right there with him. I don't think he wants Martin in the same box with him. I don't think he does. But then again, I don't know how much sway 
than Yaya has with the with the boys in Bologna. You're Italian on a bike and you're Italian world champion. I think that's some sway. But Ducati doesn't do things that way. They'll do whatever they want to do, and they're going to do it. So I don't know. That's all wild and crazy, and who knows? Some what... of the discussion that I've been reading and listening to in terms of a few of the other podcasts that I listened to was this notion that Ducati would not want the number one player on a satellite bike. And whilst I understand that it's not a particularly ideal scenario from a marketing perspective, I, I sort of look at it slightly the other way, which is that, you know, the, the satellite bikes that are running the works bikes, uh, sorry, the satellite teams that are running the works bikes, you know, they're getting top quality equipment. And if you put a good rider on, you can win the championship. Now, you know, famously, as many people will know, Simon Patterson has always said, you know, satellite teams do not win world championships. And it remains to be seen whether Martin will win the championship. I'm kind of thinking that Banyao probably will just about cling on to this and retain the title. But yeah, I mean, if that comment by Jabati was intended to put pressure on Bastianini and put him under sort of intense negative pressure to help the Martin thing along, it didn't quite work out perhaps as they might have thought if that was the intention. And I'm not suggesting that it is, but suddenly out of nowhere, yeah, Bastianini wakes up. So, but again, we'll come to that in a minute. Well, we'll come to that one, yeah. Uh, well, there's so... not an awful lot to say about the MotoGP no. race. Oh, <laughs> there's not a lot to say say about about two of the races this weekend that's why we're we're going through all the news and all the listener feedback right uh to make a show yeah well this one i forgot to put in the notes so i apologize for this one which is the fact that i read in motorsport magazine through matt oxley that ducati is going to basically get reverse um concessions now to where their bikes are so good that they're not going to be allowed as many test days they're not going to be as loud to have as many uh, wild card entries, they're gonna do. They're going to limit what Ducati can do to make that bike better. Now, the conspiracy theorist in me loves this because that's what they're gonna do so that Mark can win on the Grassini Ducati because they'll be able to test more. They won't be able to sort the 2024 bikes out. Mark will have the 23 bikes, and he's gonna put up such a big lead in the points that he just cruises home to the victory. I don't know. I'm making that part up, but I mean, it's the can you can see where this is headed. I mean, their idea is that they need to get Yamaha and Honda back at the front, and they're not going to anytime soon. Even if they did, by some miracle, come up with a better bike, it's still not going to be anything more than a top five motorcycle. I just, it, it, I mean, they're just not. I don't think they can get the sums right. I, I wouldn't put anything past Honda building a better bike than what they have this year, but. I don't think Yamaha can build a better bike as easily as Honda can, if you follow that line of thought. No, I I think most people kind of think along those lines because they're restricted by size and budget compared with HRC. And there's obviously the ongoing argument about whether an inline four <laughs> can really cut it against, you know, the army of V4 machines, which from an engineering point, Jim, you'll be able to say better than me is a more optimal solution in terms of weight distribution and power delivery and blah, 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 I guess. Although I made a particular note in my, uh, on the main race on Sunday about the fact that I distinctly remember seeing Morbidelli drive past a Ducati on the main straight. So the idea that the, that, that Yamaha is dog slow, I'm not quite sure that's exactly right. I mean, it might have been that he had a better exit and the Ducati had relatively a poorer 
exit, but he did overtake a Ducati on the main straight on the Sunday race. So I think there's, there's life in the inline four yet. And Suzuki was certainly proven that emphatically last year. So I don't know. Um, there, there, there's, there's, there's pluses and minuses to, to, to both configurations. The big thing with an inline four is it's got a much better handling concept because the because it's like if you can get it over on its axes it sort of stays there and it's a it's a handling machine you can easily distribute the weight because you don't have the v right so that center of mass is in one place and you move that um the v allows you to rev higher and get more horsepower for cheap the problem with an inline four is the more you try to rev it the harder it is because you've got all these bearings that you got to deal with right like you got another set of crank journals you get another set of you know i think two extra sets in you know, inline four versus what you would have in a, in a v4 so there's all, I mean, it's internal friction. It's it's all of these things that are there. It depends on what you're going to do. Now, I personally don't think that Yamaha will walk away from their inline four, mainly due to the fact that that's what they make. You you don't think of Yamaha having a V4. Hmm. You, you okay? They did for the they did in the 500 era. Everybody had a V configuration. I, I get it. But if you look at the if you look at Yamaha street bikes, there's really nothing that's got a V. I mean, they got they they have inline threes, they've got inline four. Um, there's really not a it, it, Yamaha never. I don't. Maybe I'm wrong, guys. If somebody out there knows this better than I do, maybe Yamaha did have a string of Vs somewhere in their history. But for my mind, from what I can remember, from you know roughly 1980 on, it's always been an inline four for Yamaha. Always. Yeah. That's yeah. just their thing just what they do hey, i mean honda's always had a v right there's always been an r that's why they're rcv <laughs> that's v that's why they're why it's in there i mean the first world the first 88 89 world superbike chain mark fred freddie merkel that was a v4 honda one mm-hmm. you know, honda built a v5 to go moto gp racing I mean, this, this is what they do ducati yeah. they've got a you know it's a v but it's an l4 if you think about it because it's one cylinder is basically horizontal to the to the ground. Although I do think they've tilted that back some uh, in the Gigliini era, where they rotated that cylinder backwards some. But anyway, oh, let's go back um, up to the, yes. Go ahead, Jim. What's your view on? I don't like this reverse uh, concession thing. I mean, the, what's good about the concession system is the people that are struggling get a, a bit of a help. I'm not sure I like the idea of penalising the people that have done well. I, I'm not sure that's the signal that we want to be sending out. I don't know. I mean, do you disagree? Well, you said you quite like the idea, so obviously you've got a different view on it to me. But it's a little bit like success ballast in a way. It's kind of like hobbying people just because they did a good job. Yeah, I I don't know. I don't. If I, if I portrayed that as I liked it, I I'm sorry. I didn't mean to to come across that way. I don't think Ducati should be penalized for the success that they have. But the fact of it is, is that both Yamaha and Honda cannot get a, get any concessions based on their results of this year. And Dorna wants concessions for them. They want them to have extra testing. They want them to have extra wild cards, all this other stuff, which by their own rules is not allowed. So what they're going to do is take away the success of Ducati, say, hey, you guys got to basically sit still and not develop anything while the guys over here at Honda and Yamaha catch up. And 
I think this is more along. I don't think this is 100% yes, we are going to do this. I think this is like a trial balloon being floated out there by Dorna going, look, we want Yamaha and Honda to have concessions. If you, Ducati, are going to sit there and tell us, no, they can't because Honda had a podium. Uh, they had a win. They had a podium, I think. Uh, Yamaha's had a podium. Hey, guess what, guys? Mm-mm, that you that they don't get concessions, and if Ducati wants to be hard lined about that, I think this is Dorna going. Look, we can take that away from you, and you're not going to have any wild cards. We're gonna you're not going to have any test days outside of what you get at the track, and let's see how good you are now. I, I just think there's it's it's a it's a political thing that's running around, right? And part of the problem is, I mean, we always go on about Dorna, but Dorna don't really have any say in this. So unfortunately, the governance of the sport is so kind of out of whack because you need union no this is a word i struggle with Jim. Unanimity, <laughs> unanimity amongst the teams for these kind of changes you know big wholesale changes to the rules and of course turkey's voting for well, i was gonna say christmas or thanksgiving would be more topical coming up um so it's hard to see a change coming anytime soon unless it's just absolutely rammed through like it or not but that's obviously a dangerous game to play which has been done in the past talking about ECUs and so on earlier on. But, I mean, something clearly does need to change because the concession system worked really well for a few years, but everybody, with the exception of Yamaha and Honda now, the other teams have kind of really benefited from that. But you almost feel as if the concessions need to cut in at an earlier stage now. So, that I mean, if you get a win in the season, that shouldn't rule you out of getting a concession because if, if a Honda gets one win in the season and Ducati get 20, that is still a wide disparity in performance as far as I'm concerned. So maybe they just need to look at freeing up a bit, you know, how you qualify to get concessions rather than taking away from the people that have actually done well. That would be my preference. But whether they could get the teams to agree is a whole different discussion for another day. Yeah, I mean, maybe it should be a percentage thing, right? Because, I mean, you really only have, you only have the two Yamahas. You only have four Hondas. You got eight Ducatis on the grid. So if you did it by percentage, maybe that's, you know, you think about it over one Honda win over 20, 20 what, 40 races there, right? And you by percentage, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you could do it by points percentage. I mean, you could do something else, I guess. But I think there's just the evilness of the politics is there. Dorna doesn't want a one make championship. And that's, kind of what you've got ducati is definitely the dominant player and what we can see they're going to be the dominant player for a while the only hope that we have is that by 2025 ktm has come good and acosta is just a magic on that bike because otherwise i don't think there's really anybody that can match ducati no, not at the moment. And you only had to look at the race last weekend to see that. I mean, the first few laps, it's like Ducati, 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 mm-hmm. and then Binder, because Binder's usually in there somewhere. But it, it's just a, a, an army of, of not bloody Ducatis. I, you know, I shouldn't swear like that, because they've just done a great job. You know, they flooded the grid with top, top bikes that are the best technically. They've got great riders on pretty much every single bike. And so, you know, they're reaping reaping what they've sowed in a positive sense, aren't they? So hobbling them, I think, would be a bit tough because they've done the best job with the rules that they've got. 
and you know the others either need to do better or they need a bit more of a help in terms of how those concessions work that would be my view very interested to know what other people think on that okay let's move on to the last two things in the news Roy Skinner has been ousted for the American racing team. I did not know that, Rich. What happened there? This is Yeah, this is just broken. So they had, earlier in the season, they had obviously confirmed that Joe Roberts was going to be going back. So Joe's been at Ital Trans Moto T for the last two seasons, but he's going back to American racing where he started off. Uh, so that was confirmed a little while back. Now, whether it's on the back of the weekend just gone, probably not because he's been doing well. But if you remember, they, uh, and we never really quite got to the bottom of what happened here either. Sean Dylan Kelly was arrested from the team. Now, he was having ongoing arm pump issues, or that was the story. Went off to have more surgery and never came back, although he is riding the forward on the forward Moto2 team now. So they brought in, I want to say Manuel, it's not Manuel Gozard, it's Marcos Ramirez. Sorry, I always get those two guys muddled up. Um, Marcos Ramirez came in to replace Sean Dylan Kelly. And it's done, actually, I mean, all credit to the guy. He's done really, really well. Got a podium at the weekend. He's just been confirmed for next year alongside Joe Roberts, but Rory Skinner was on a two-year deal. So that contract's just been apparently just torn in half and thrown away. For the second time this year, two riders that were contracted to the team have been basically thrown out on the rear when they had valid contracts in place. So, I mean, there might be ramifications to that in terms of contract recognition boards and so on. But... You know, I'm sure by his own admission, whether I'll get a chance to have a quick chat with him this weekend, I don't know. And obviously, this is obviously not going to be a good time to chat to him about it. But I'm sure Rory, by his own admission, would say he's probably a bit frustrated with his results this year. But I distinctly remember John Hopkins himself saying Rory's coming in on a two-year deal. No pressure year one. Learn the bike, learn the tracks. Year two is when he's due to perform. Well, he's not going to get a year two with that team now. So that is not good really as far as I'm concerned I mean I, I know we always sort of glibly say contracts are there to be broken and there's an element of truth to that if contracts are poorly worded but in this particular case of course as many people will know but some won't Rory Skinner was both managed by the team owner of American Racing Team and I think Hopper's in there as sporting director with involvement as well so the person that wrote the contract for him has now just cancelled it for him at the same time so conflict of interest I mean it's a bit, it doesn't smell great, that one. Whether we'll get to know more about it in the short term, I don't know. But as things stand, Rory Skinner's out of a ride next year. And it's very late in the season for this to have happened. Because, I mean, the BSB season finished ages ago. And although there's many deals to be announced in BSB, which is where Skinner came from, you know, the top rides are already gone. So it really leaves him in a tricky position. Unless he can pick up another Moto2 seat somewhere, which is possible. But yeah, it doesn't doesn't sit well with me that kind of shenanigans. Yeah, that's an interesting one. We'll have to keep our eye on that one. And uh, the last thing, Qatar is this weekend, and you, sir, will be in the Middle East. Yeah. So let me just quickly run through now. Obviously, best laid plans and everything are always subject to change. And this is me running around like a headless chicken in a paddock I've never been to before, meeting people I've never met before. So I don't know how exactly how this will go, but. Chops to all the press officers and stuff. I've been given this access by Dorna, uh, and thank you very much to Dorna for being so accommodating on this. So I've been getting in touch with people, trying to see if we can get some FaceTime with the people that I would like to talk to. I know a little bit about them. I'm hopefully, you know, it's people that 
uh, all of the listeners will be interested in. So in sort of hopefully in relatively concise order of how, who I'm meant to be seeing, most of this is on the Thursday because that's obviously the main day for media stuff. We have uh, Dennis Onshu, Hervé Poncheral, Sam Lowe's, Colin Vaya, uh, Ayumi Sasaki, then a little gap, and then hopefully at two o'clock, Jake Dixon, Joe Roberts. So again, I'm, I'm sort of aiming us a little bit around who our core listenership is, although obviously we have listeners all over the world, but hopefully this will please a lot of people. Uh, after Joe, I've got uh, Takanakagami. I would have been speaking to Alex Rins, but he's ruled out again because he's still recovering from this latest um, operation that he's had on this broken leg. So should get to speak to his replacement, Ika Lekawona. Then we've got Sergio Garcia, uh, Alonso Lopez, and the man himself, Fermin Aldiga, towards the end of the day. And then elsewhere in the weekend, I should certainly get to speak to Scott Ogden and Josh Watley from the Vision Track team. And I've got a session on Friday afternoon with Lucio Cecinello of LCR as well. And then I'm sure I'll get to bump into the likes of Simon Crayfar. I could ask him about automatic clutches, for example, what he knows about that, because he's bound to have some insight there, Jim. Um, Matt, but I'm hoping I might get a chance to have a chat with Neil Hodgson. He, you know, he's a commentator for TNT Sports, uh, who do the UK coverage, and a few other people. I'm sure I'll, you know, I'll get to as well. So I, I don't want to overcommit because otherwise you miss meetings and then you sort of tick people off. And I'd rather go sort of try and do uh, quality rather than quantity. Although I've got rather a lot on the plate already there. So um, yeah, that's the plan anyway. So let's see how it goes. My first time in the MotoGP paddock, so I'll be shitting my pants basically, and I hope to do a good job. Pardon the French. I think you'll be fine, Rich. I do. All right, let's get to the actual racing. We'll try to go through this. Like I said, there's a couple races that are not really worth talking about, but we'll start it with Moto3. Uh, the first qualifying session, Rueda, Vire, Alonso, Forasado, and Toba are all in that session. The previous week's winner, nowhere this week. That's what I love about Moto3. Uh, Va- <laughs> Alonso did have a massive crash at turn three. It was a major high side. He landed square on his hip. And uh, I uh, credit to that boy being able to even get back up and get on a bike and actually race the next day. But uh, Colin Vire, Rueda, Artigas, and Perez, who's substituting for Anna Carassa, went through to that second qualifying session. Uh, the second qualifying session, well, interesting, well, all the KTM guys were all trying to tow each other around. So they were definitely running around there or whatever. Holgardo uh, got crashed in t- turn seven. Um, with four minutes left, Masia threw down a 210.846. He was nine-tenths of a second faster than any other person on a MotoGP bike, or Moto3 bike. I thought that was wildly impressive for that That's class. A it's a yeah. lot. Now, he did seem to get it just right with a huge pack of riders on each of the two long straightaways. So they think I think that's like roughly three, maybe four tenths, which means if you took out his slipstreaming, he still would have been a half a second faster than anybody else, which I find that to be massively impressive. But Masia would start on pole. Vira was second, then Bertelli, Ortola, Sasaki, Rueda, Kelso, Munoz, Anshu, and Brera. Those are the top ten. From qualifying, we get to the we get to the race, and they start off with this one. And Ortola had a hole shot; he got a great shot. But Vire, Masi, and all both go by. 
or Anchi was ahead for a little bit of Otola, then Otola got back by. I mean, it was just kind of crazy that first lap. They were just shuffling it up any which way. Anchi was on the charge. He was definitely moving from where he started going forward. Uh, They had, you know, again, it was crazy. I was in sort of an Alonzo watch because he was 12th after the first lap, way from his lowly like 20th some spot he started in. Which I'm like, this is what the kid does, right? He he crashes, he gets on, has like, okay, I don't have to go that fast anymore. And then he rides up to the front, which his rides from the back of the pack are really worth watching, to be honest. They are yeah, quite nine, nine places on the first lap. Yeah. I mean, it's insane they, that the kid can actually do that. Sasaki got a turn at the front around Masia with Vire, uh, Anchu as well. Alonzo was up another two places. He was 10th after two laps there. Then we get to probably the most critical moment of the race. Alonzo has another wicked high side. He does this one at turn four, which is a high speed corner. He loses it, throws it down on the ground. This collects Helgardo, Barrera, and Rossi. Everyone they ran into like Alonzo's bike. They had nowhere to go. They were trying to go off track you know, to, to what would be right or left at that point. And they just got caught up in Alonzo's bike. Uh, Horgado just kind of plowed it. Now, the amazing thing to me was that Alonzo was able to get that bike running again and actually make a lap or two. I couldn't believe the bike was actually that way. I couldn't really tell, but I think it must've been wheels towards everybody coming. And I think that maybe Horgado went, you know, rubber on rubber and bounced over it, which would have been, you know, Nobody wants to hit anyone or anything. You're trying not to. You're 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 trying as best you can, but there's only so much you can do because we talked about this. So you know, for there is Newton's laws of physics come into play. You know, object in motion stays in motion until you act upon by an outside force. The outside force is you either trying to break or swerve or something, and then you can't do it to, as quickly as what your 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 approach speed is to this. But Furasado was also down, but that was a separate crash. He sort of low side of himself out of turn four two i think it, it was weird crash the camera angles weren't that great for, for both incidents really so i mean onzo as you say definitely thought high sided himself coming out of turn four and the others had nowhere to go for Asato, was a fair bit back into the corner and appeared just to sort of more or less do the same thing but this time it was on his own and he didn't take anybody with him i don't think mm-hmm. anyway yeah so hargado was up holding his sort of right wrist right arm I was thinking collarbone, maybe his wrist. Uh, apparently, it was just a stinger or something. Maybe I haven't found that mm-hmm. he's got any kind of an injury, you know, that would prevent him from riding a guitar. Um, if you see Holgardo walking around there, ask him how the arm feels because I want to yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, they did show him briefly walking back into the pits with um, Furusato. I think it might have been, and uh, he kind of at that stage looked a bit better, so probably just tweaked a finger or something. Yep. Uh, the front is pretty wicked. It's, it's Sasaki, Munoz, Vire, Anchu, Masia, Bertoli, Ruben, and Artola. That's the lead group. I mean, literally put them in any order because it's changing at every possible spot. What yeah. happens is what's interesting is that you had Munoz has what I think is the save of the season because, uh, it was, uh, uh, gosh, I, I got it. I can't, it was. Masia nudges his front onto the back of um, Munoz's rear, and it just pushes it out sideways just a little bit. 
and it just I, somehow the kid catches it. I mean, I, I would have been flipping through the grass, but <laughs> he, he saves the thing and just kind of like, oh, okay, well, that happened. I would have needed, I would have needed new underwear, uh, new leathers. I would have had to stop for a minute, make my heart rate come back down. But it was just this little nudge that he put on him on Munoz, and it was. It, I, I thought it was going to be major high side, but he somehow saved it. It was quite, quite impressive. With the eight to go, things are starting to stretch out a little bit. Our our league group kind of has has some space in between, and I thought at this point Mossy was going to go to the front and use that advantage that he had in qualifying. I figured, okay, if you're Mossy and if you can get by at like say maybe turn four. And you can run that faster pace because he was very quick through sectors two and three as well. If you could run that pace, you're going to put enough on the guys that are behind you that they're not going to have an effect of the draft, effective draft to catch you on the two long straightaways. So I thought this was going to be the spot where Masi is going to break this and he's going to be gone. And, and maybe Sasaki will go with him. How wrong was I? That that didn't <laughs> last. It just sucked itself right back together again and it was a top six battle and those six were Sasaki, Vire, Masia, Anchu, um, Bertoli, and Rueda. They they get together uh, Masia slid up the inside of Sasaki and, and uh, Verhe with three to go which was a great move um, then Anchu wound up going out and falling at turn five so we're now down to like that kind of separated everybody to like the top three, which was basically Masia, Sasaki, and Vire, which you kind of saw what you thought was going to happen was that Colin was going to tow Sasaki down the first of the two long straights, let Sasaki go by at turn 15, and then follow him home and be that buffer between him and Sasaki. This was like, this seemed to be the ultimate Husqvarna plan. And you and it happened for a couple of laps where Vire was really, really super tentative of trying to go around Sasaki. He was being ultra respectful of his teammate. And you just think, well, okay, this is what's gonna happen. But needless to say, in the last lap, that's not what happened. Vire just <laughs> simply went wide and then cut it back and went charging right up underneath Sasaki to win his first Moto 3 race. Sasaki would finish second, and then you would have Masa. On there. Great race by Colin Vire. I mean, this kid, him versus Alonzo next year for the Moto 3 title is going to be sweet because mm-hmm. he seems to be the de- the real deal. You know, great ride by Colin. And so, go ahead, Richard. Uh, he is not a typical looking Moto 3 rider either. I mean, he's really, really tall and he must be at a weight disadvantage. So he's doing miraculous things on that bike. Really, when you bring that into consideration, because Think, bear in mind how much we've talked about how much of a perceived handicap it's been for Dennis Onshu, the size and weight thing. But Via, yeah, I mean, just muscles that bike, doesn't he? Well, if you look at it for some reason, and I don't know why, Via can collapse himself to fit under that bubble. Onshu is a Onshu is a wide kid. Like he's got broad shoulders. Mm, and yeah, and Vire doesn't. Now I can't remember how old Anchu is. He's got is he 19 almost 20? I guess he must be something around about something that, like yeah. that. Because it's been several yeah. years since since his brother won in in Valencia. Vire's yeah. 18, mm-hmm. they said. So I don't know if it's just Vire's just late to the puberty bell or whatever. I don't know. 
But I mean, he's like he's a typical Dutch. I mean, he's like yeah. literally like nine feet tall. So I mean, it's just ridiculously tall. Uh, he towers over his teammate. I don't know if you saw them in Part Ferme, but it, oh, must yeah. be, it must be a foot and a half, two foot taller than Sasaki. So, or, or a, foot, a foot taller, certainly. So I'm exaggerating, but yeah, he's a very unconventional, successful Moto3 rider at this point in time. That's the point. Yeah, so he's going to be there next year. So I look forward yeah. to it as well. Um, let's see. So we had Vyra Sasaki Masia, Ortola Fernandez Artigas, Kelso, uh, Freoli, Yamanaki, Bertelli, Anchi was 11th. Then it was Perez, Ogden, Watley, sorry, and then Nepa taking up the last point, which takes us nicely to the championship standings. It is a 13 point lead that Juan Masia has over Sasaki. So it's 246 to 233. David Alonso is at 205. Holgado is on 205. Then Anchi's at 196. If Anchi hadn't had that accident and finished on the podium, he'd have been third. And wouldn't have been too far out of whack. Those, if he could have won at those twenty-five points, would have been incredible for his championship challenge. But that seems to have faded. It's, I think it's, just, it's simply just these. I mean, I know that Alonso is forty-one out, and you've got fifty points left to play. I don't think that he's going to do anything about that. It's between well, Masi and Sasaki, and they both have to crash out this twice. weekend for Valencia to really be a you know, a realistic shot for Alonso or anybody else or Holgado. Really, now, I think at this point at this point in time. I'm going to ask you this. Let's assume, we're going to make an assumption here. I hate assumptions, but let's assume that we have relatively 10 points or less between Sasaki and Masia at Valencia. Who do you take for the title? Masia. Really? Mm. Huh. Interesting. I, uh, only because, well... Be careful because I'm meant to be talking to him on Thursday, but because I've got you know, I've got the utmost respect for Sasaki. I mean, he's a damn good rider, and obviously, he will want to. Well, I'd say applies to Mastery, of course, because they're both going up to Moto 2 next year, so this is their last chance to win the Moto 3 championship, and only one of them can do it. But that was the seventh second place finish for Sasaki this year, so I mean, he may well win the title, and he may well be a person that wins the title never having won a race all season. I mean, he's won races in previous seasons, so it's not as if he's never won in Moto3. But in a last lap scuffle, he always seems to come off second, doesn't he? And it's not just this year. That's kind of tended to be a little bit. He's quite polite in a way that Japanese riders quite often are. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think we're sort of underplaying a little bit how tricky that must have been in the team garage after the race, because obviously Vaya got his first win, and it was a great win. But, cool, that could end up costing his teammate big at the end of this season. And it was a tricky one for Colin Vire, though. I mean, let's not forget, Masia was there, so he didn't want to sort of do something and, and mess it up. And then Masia snuck through for the win. That would have been even worse, potentially. So certainly from the team's standpoint, they would have rather Vire won <laughs> rather than Masia. But so it was a very tricky thing for him to manage. But like you, I was fully expecting him to aside but on the other hand Jim does Sasaki want to win a championship by being gifted positions by his teammate probably not I'm, I'm sure he wouldn't want to win it that way so um yeah but it was a hell of a race I mean it yeah, it was. just just brilliant I, I must just um you've underplayed slightly on Chu's crash which wasn't really his crash I, I mean it was Rueda that lost control and and bashed into him and knocked him off so under the circumstances, to finish 11th or whatever it was, was, I suppose, not a bad outcome. Well, it was a bad outcome, but he at least he rescued some points. But it's really screwed him up in the championship now. 
he can't win though. He's fifty one behind. Yeah. The only reason I thought that I would take maybe Sasaki is I'm not so sure the Honda's gonna fit that well at Valencia. I could see just all the KTM clones being ahead of Marcia easily. Yeah, I was thinking a bit more from the point of view, if you put, based on form, and I can only ever go on form really, if you put them both in a sort of a last lap battle, assuming that it's good conditions and Valencia may well not be. I mean, if it's wet, I would probably mm. then start to favour Sasaki more than Marcia. Uh, but it's a lottery, you know, if, if, if Valencia is wet and cold, there's going to be a lottery anyway because tyres will be a nightmare in terms of heat. All sorts of shenanigans could go on there. But in a, in a straight fight, my point was, I think probably Massey is the more aggressive of the two. Yeah. But it's impossible to say. It, yeah, it is. It's just utter speculation, really. Yep. All right. Well, let's go to Moto2 quickly. Um, yeah, as quickly as possible. <laughs> we'll get it over as quickly as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, basically... Um, in the Moto2 second qualifying, Aldiger just threw down a lap that was just literally wicked. I mean, he had a lap that just no one was going to touch at all. Um, a couple other people got their laps kind of taken care of because of crashes and yellow flags and stuff like that. And it was sort of a free-for-all, but Aldiger was just head and shoulders above everybody else. It was Aldiger, Vietti, Gonzalez, Canet, Ramirez, then Acosta, Arbolino right there in seventh. Dixon, Chancho, and Robert Sergio. Top 10 out of qualifying. Uh, what we need to understand going into the race is that it doesn't matter where Arbolino finishes. As long as Pedro Acosta finishes in the top four, it's his title. That's the simplest math going into this. So we get into this Moto3 race on Sunday. Basically, Gonzalez gets a whole shot to start it off. Uh, but then... He's out wide at two, and he's trying to come back. I guess between one and two, he's trying to come back to the racing line, which would be riders right. And lo and behold, there's somebody there, and that's Outiger. Gonzalez bumps into it with the bike leaned over pretty far. It kind of picks the front end up. He loses it. He crashes in front of the entire pack. Credit hold your where, breath time. <laughs> yes, that was a big hold your breath moment. Credit to where credit is due. Arbolino basically stopped to not hit uh, Gonzalez. What's funny is Gonzalez is kind of sliding on his butt with him, him looking in the direction of, of, of the race. Like he's looking towards turn two. He senses Arbolino there and picks his arm up. So Arbolino could kind of go through and then he looks around, everybody else has missed him. And now he's there. Thank goodness that when that, when that Gonzalez and his bike went right or left because most people were to the right to set up for that turn. So everybody was able to miss him. It was hold your breath time. Thank goodness that that was there, but that meant Arbolino was well down the pack. Now let's just call it what it is. Gonzalez at that point was gone. Goodbye. Uh-uh. Hello. It was hello. Goodbye. He was out. Outiger was darn it. Sorry. Outiger <laughs> <laughs> was gone. Sorry. So he was gone. Uh, Acosta kind of slid into second place. Nothing changes in this whole race. It stays that way. It was a boring, boring race because nothing really happens. I did. I was a bit upset that you really didn't get to see Agura come charging through the pack because Agura, although he, he Agura qualified well down and 
he didn't he was making it up but it was a good battle there it was an arbolino watch for me i was trying to figure out where he was going to finish off or whatever but basically arbolino was like with nine with nine laps to go arbolino was like 13th and then by then it was all over and in basically the race finishes with outer group on on the podium on first acosta gets second which gives him the world championship title he is your world champion Ramirez on the American Racers has a great race to get on the podium. He kind of spoke about that in the first part of the show. Then it's Agura, Dixon, Chantra, Lowe's, Roberts, Arenas. Arbolino got 10th. Baltus, Alcoba, Esserg, Salach, and Foggia for the last point. Um, the, I don't know. What do you want to talk about there, Rich? Because it was a dull Moto2 race. Yeah, it was It was really, really tedious. Uh, again, because I didn't get up in the middle of the night to watch it. I watched it on uh, catch-up on Sunday morning, my time. Uh, and again, I've written fast forward button is being used quite a bit here. Uh, <laughs> there was quite a high attrition rate. It must be said. I mean, a lot of riders went down. We lost Garcia. Uh, Nazani went down. Canet went down. Vietti went down. So there was a lot of crashes, but it was all kind of people just crashing on their own. It was a lot of weird front enders again, whether tire pressures were perhaps becoming a bit of an issue. I don't know. Obviously it's a different tire brand. Don't know. Um, nothing extraordinary going on with the weather compared to a you know normal sapang kind of condition so a little bit hard to understand what that was the, the one thing that did stick in my craw a little bit and i kind of understand why they do it but again this is where the picture in picture thing ought to be more heavily used and that is although it probably wasn't as close as i thought it was going to be agira was closing in or had been closing on gonzalez for that last podium place and on the last lap, we pretty much followed Pedro Costa around, who was on his own. Okay, it was the last lap, you know, before he won the Moto2 Championship. So I understood that. But we were missing a piece of racing in a race that didn't have a lot of racing to enjoy. So it seemed to me that they should have put, you know, Costa trundling around on his own, down in a box in the bottom right or something, where, you know, you could watch that if that was of any interest, which I can't see why it would have been particularly. And instead focused on, yeah, whether or not Aguirre was going to get uh, Mano Gonzalez. Oh, sorry, or was it? No, sorry, not Gonzalez. It was Marcos Ramirez. I'm doing it now because Gonzalez went down at turn one, didn't he? So no, it's Marcos Ramirez on the American Racing Team, as we were talking about earlier on. He that was a very, very, very strong ride by him. A great result to get third. But, and Aguirre looked like he was going to pinch it, but he didn't in the end. So yeah, other than that, not really much to say. Did you see Acosta throwing up? Yeah, I was wondering if he was throwing. Was he throwing up or not? I thought he was. I thought he was throwing up, but I don't know if he really was or if it was. I'm pretty sure he was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, uh, that is a uh, anybody that's been to Sepang, and I've been several times, not to the race, but I've been been there on work in the past. I mean, like all of that part of the world, it is ferociously hot and humid. So to ride a bike under that much physical and mental pressure with that title on the line, I mean. It was never really in much doubt that Acosta was going to win the championship, but you still got to get the bike across the line and score the points that you need. So, and, you know, it's been a big year for the lad, you know, a lot of pressure. He's going up to MotoGP. So you can understand how it all came to, suddenly came to a four for him. And uh, yeah, he was pretty ill, I think. He looked quite understandably dehydrated when he was having his little kind of out on track celebration and stuff. He had to get, a, you know, a bottle of water down if you remember, because he was uh, coughing up. A bit there as well so but took it all on the chin didn't he still chatted away to simon crafer in part firma even though he kept retching so yeah bit of a superstar that boy he might do well <laughs> yeah he's got potential, he's like, got it's potential. Be really 
fascinating to see how he adapts to the GP part. I mean, people have drawn parallels, of course, between him and, say, Rossi, you know, one year to learn, one year to win the title. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll see. I'm not suggesting that he'll win the MotoGP Championship in 2025, but then again, he's on a KTM, which is not far off being the best bike. So yep. it could happen. It could happen. Uh, he's the youngest Moto2 world champion, replacing one Mark Marquez. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you you start to break those kind of people's records, you, yeah. you got potential. And for the most part, although we've just been commenting on how drained he was, thoroughly understandably so on Sunday, for the most part this year, it's all been pretty serene, hasn't it? I mean, he. I'm not suggesting it's been an easy championship because no championship is easy, but he has just been fast and consistent all year long so if he can replicate any level of that kind of performance in MotoGP he will be getting tongues wagging pretty quickly again the fascinating things we're watching for oh so that uh uh, we can look at the championship Acosta is world champion Arbolino is there he has a 77 point lead on Jake Dixon there's 50 points left in play so I think Arbolino is going to be second and um, Dixon is on 183, and uh, Outiger is on 162. So that's 21 behind. Jake needs to be looking behind him because Outiger may take that third spot from him. Uh, then after that, it's Kent, Kenneth, Chantra, Alonzo, uh, Gonzalez, and Ayagura, and Salach in your top 10 there. So uh, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting, that's for sure. So... That is Moto2. I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about Moto2? I don't think so. So I nope. think we're pretty no, much nothing. I think we're pretty much done there. So let's get the Moto GP here. Uh, real quickly, you had the games with Mark Marquez and Morbidelli in qualifying. I think we covered that at the beginning of the show with the 105% rule and whatnot. No reason to go through all that again. Uh Spargaro was down. Marquez was down. He had fallen at turn seven and went over that sausage curve. Him and the whole bike went together. Again, I hate sausage curve, but there we have that. Uh, DG Antonio and, ba- and Bastianini go through. Excuse me, go through in the first from the first qualifying qualifying session to the second. Um, Martina got it down to a one fifty seven five, which is absolutely incredible uh, that he was down to that speed or whatever. I thought that was it. I thought they were done at that point. But again, Benyaya threw down at the very end a 157.49 to take the pole position ahead of Martin, ahead of Bastianini, ahead of Alex Marquez, Luca Marini, Marco Bezzecchi. Anything notice anything about the top six? They're all on Ducatis. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Uh, then you had Bender as the first non-Ducati. And Quattro, I thought, was a brilliant qualifying from him. I mean, he was directly into Q2. And then he was able to ride to eighth. Uh, and then Vinales Miller is the other KTM, and then uh, Fabio DJ Antonio and Zarco. So that was the qualifying session there. If we get to the sprint, um, everybody was talking about the pace that Alex Marquez had all weekend long. Uh, there that he was there. I wasn't so sure that he was gonna ha- he's gonna be able to hang it here with with the big boys on this circuit. But we started out. Then Yaya got out front. Bastianini was right there. Alex Marquez, Martin, Miller, Bender. Then Alex gets by Bastianini, and Martin goes by to Bastianini because it was like they're mixing it up pretty hard there. And then Benyaya was wide, and he was so wide, and he kind of went wide because Marquez was 
forcing the move on him. But that let Martin hit by as well. So it kind of settled out where Benyaya kind of raced back to the front where it was Benyaya, Marquez, Martin, Miller, Bender. Then Mark crashed at turn 14. Mir crashed at turn 15. Benyaya was still out front. Marquez was right behind him. Bastianini was setting the fastest laps of anybody. So Bastianini, who had went backwards, had now come back forward again. He had some serious pace. But Alex Marquez went by Biagi. Yeah, Biagi. Biagi. Benyaya. What year? Yeah, exactly. What year? (laughs) What Italian? I don't know. It's been a long, this has been a long show, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, He put, I put, I scribble off BAG there. So my mind just went to Biagi. That's how I do it. The glory days. days. Yeah, the glory days. Yeah, I'm stuck back in 1994 or five. Uh, Anyway, Uh, finally, Martin got by. Benyaya as well. Benyaya had something that was on the right fairing. I don't know if it was like a part of a plastic bag or something that was over there. I don't know if that was affecting his handling or if it was affecting his top speed, but like he got that on the bike and then he sort of went backwards. Yeah, he did. It was, I, I'm like, I, yeah, it was very, very odd that, you know, that, they had caught something. I mean, what it reminded me of was like a lunch bag that one of the marshals may have had in a corner that the wind blew out to the track. I'm not yeah. saying the corner workers had anything to do with this people. I'm just making an analogy. Um, I have utmost respect for all the corner workers. Cause I mean, they got to stand out there in the heat the whole time. Oh, there's a night, nightmare place to be a marshal. Yeah. God, they, they, well, they don't earn every penny that they make cause they don't make any money. I mean, they're just doing it, you know, cause fun. they love great the sport. people. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thought I had about what it was that flew up was I wondered if it was a kind of a delaminated bit of paint from one of the curbs because it, it kind of looked mm. as if it was breaking off bit by bit. So I, I don't know. Yeah, good thought. I don't know. Because in a uh, climate like that, stuff does, you know, delaminate because it's so hot. You know, the temperature swings there are so enormous and the amount of moisture that's around obviously is colossal. So another thought, but who knows? But it must have, I, whether he would have even seen it, I don't know because it was kind of like, Probably just about out of his eye line, I would have thought, but it must have affected the bike a little bit. I think it did in some way, but who knows? But while we're trying to figure out what was going on there, Marquez was gone, and Marquez would win the sprint race. He was followed by Mar- Martin Benyaya, Bastianini, who got to Benyaya and promptly stopped. <laughs> it was almost too obvious, right? it seemed like there's a lot going on there was a lot there there was a lot going on in that those couple of moments there like i'm not going to pass him because (laughs) the other guy is ahead so i'm not going to put myself in this spot i'm going to play the consummate teammate because i would really like to ride the red bike next year and not the purple and white bike (laughs) next year so i think i think that was there's some of that going on but uh Bastianini was was probably going to win, I think. I don't know if he would have caught Marquez, but I think he would have caught Martin as well and been second. That was my my theory on there. But all all respect, Marquez won another sprint race. He won at Silverstone, I think, in a sprint. Yeah, Martin was yeah. second. Benyaya, Bastianini, Bender, Miller, Bezeki, Zarco, Marini, and Vinales. There's your top ten out of the sprint, and that. Basically, that was down to eight points or something like that. I think at that time, I don't remember. I did. I did write 11. it down. It was eleven. 11, 11, okay, 11. so it was eleven yeah. points separating us. Now, 
we would go to the race on Sunday, and this was going to be a race of front and rear tire management. The front row, everybody on the front row went with the medium, medium. I thought, okay, this is going to be interesting because we're going to have like this thought about who's on what tire, and maybe there's a long game here because this is 20 laps around this place. Martin got a whole shot, but he went very deep into turn one. That pushed him wide. Bastianini, Mark Marquez, Alex Marquez, sorry, not Mark, and Ben Yaya kind of went by. Uh, even Bezecchi got by to put Martin back, and then Quattraro was there. Bastianini was in front of Alex. They were pulling away. Ben Yaya was next and third. Martin was there. Now, Martin tried to go by Ben Yaya at turn 14, but Ben Yaya went right back underneath to him. Martin tried again to get past Ben Yaya, but it was a good ding-dong battle where every time Martin got by, Ben Yaya got the elbows back out, and Ben Yaya went right back in front of, him again, front of him again. And basically with 15 laps to go, the race was decided. What you saw was what you got. And I think you probably used the fast forward button there for a while too, didn't you, Rich? Because I watched well, the replay too. It was obvious, as you say, Jim, that front tire pressure was the thing that I know we're running long already, but we're going to have to talk yeah, about this we do. because it is, as things stand at the moment, and this is not the first race where this has been an issue. It's certainly the worst, I would say, this year. People can't afford to get on the wrong side of that rule at the minute because there's a lot to lose. Yep. And on top of which, obviously, I, I suppose part of this is also that the bike's just become unrideable if that tyre starts to overinflate effectively with the heat. So this is a problem. And it's not a problem that could be solved particularly quickly either, unless they were to... Yes, it can be solved quickly. Scrap, they just, well, scrap the rule. No, they just say that you can be, you know, the, the rule states that you cannot be below 1.88 bar for more than 50% of the race. The mm -hmm. problem is that if you're in traffic, the tire heats up. And so once it gets up to what gets beyond two bar, two bar or higher, it's like you have ice. It's like you're riding on ice. According to what I've read Motorsport Magazine, Matt Oxley, mm -hmm. that's what he's saying. Okay, so what the teams are doing, they start with lower pressures. Now, for some reason, somebody who I think is not a race engineer or is not a tire engineer, I think it's a lawyer, um, and that, that's me speculating, has decided that 1.88 is what we're not going to be below because we don't want tires delaminating and having a problem. Now, most people have said that you know in the last few years, no one's raced in one on a front tire that has been less than like one. 0.6 bar so what they're saying is if you drop it from 1.88 bar to 1.78 bar you would see better racing and it would be safer racing because they would have grip and whatnot and the other thing is build a better tire which we've been told michelin has a better tire but they haven't had time to test it because nobody wants to test it because everybody's working on what they got right now yeah. so well, somebody's michelin, gonna... michelin's desperate to test it it's not their yes. fault right so I, I i don't know who's to blame in this one but what was interesting is martin could not risk running afoul of the rule because he'd already had one warning this year that he was below pressure for over 50 percent of the race the thing of it is is that you can have that lower pressure gives you better stability on braking gives you better feel at the front end and you can race harder with it so benyaya did not have a said penalty or sorry said warning and Ben Yaya was contemplating using it at Qatar, where he was willing to run under the limit at Qatar because of the cool temperatures, because of the you know the long straightaway, because the dew settling on the track that we seem to have in that 
time frame. I don't know. We're there in November now. We've always been there in March. I maybe the temperatures are the same or close. I want you to tell me how humid it is and whether the dew mm. does set it, yeah, during I'll be race time. To, so yeah, yeah. Please take note of that for me while you're there. But the thing was is that Martin could not attack Benyaya because he said I was on ice. So he had to ride home behind Benyaya. Benyaya, who was wanting to save this one Joker card, if you will, for his time at Qatar, eh, he gets told, nope, you are underneath for 50% of this race. You now have a warning. So the next time you're under, whether it's Martin or Benyaya, you get a three-second penalty, three-second time penalty. There's some time uh, penalty involved. Right. There is a time penalty involved if you're that way. Now, next year, it's going to be even worse because there's no warnings. There's no time penalty. It's instant disqualification. Mm. Ugh. You talk about crummy racing that's going to show up here. It's terrible. All over this rules. So the only good thing I can say about this is now what would have been a, what would have been an advantage to Benyaya has been stricken because he has been given a warning as well. So at least the two guys who are going to fight for this title have the same problem. Neither one of them can afford to literally be beyond to be under on their tire pressure. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, come back, come back to the problem, Jim. Though, which is, and Alicia Spargo, I think, said that that, that rule is destroying the racing at the moment. I think that was pretty much exactly what he said. And I think on the evidence of Sunday, you'd have to conclude that he's right. Yep. Whether there's, I mean, I was trying to think back to you know previous races in Sepang in MotoGP, and it's not a track that necessarily comes to the front of your mind for classic races, it's true, in MotoGP, but that was a particularly boring affair in the main race on Sunday, wasn't it? I mean, the front four guys who, was, who we got to see pretty much all race long, all just sort of separated by two to three seconds by the time the race settled in, and nobody seemingly able or willing to do anything much about it. So, I mean, it, it suggests to me that that rule needs to be modified. I mean, I understand why they don't want people running tyres way under pressure compared to what Michelin would want them to be running at. But I have to say, have we ever seen like major problems with tyres before with people running them at lower pressures? Well, we had the one rear tyre that delaminated years ago in Malaysia. And I think that was a... I want to say that was a Bridgestone that did because it was on the back mm -hmm. of an Aprilia. I I can't remember who it was. Al, it was, oh, I, I can, they, they were, I think it was back in the CRT day. Okay. I don't even remember that to be honest, but it was, no, it was, in, it was in testing. It was in testing in Malaysia, like in February. Okay. And it was, and it was, uh, it's not Alvaro Bautista, but the guy's name was, had to be Bass. Loris Bass had it, had a tire delamitate, delamitate, oh, okay. good grief, delaminate it, not delamitate it. I'm making it <laughs> as we go here. But yeah. I think it was Loris Bass. It was some, somebody had a problem with, with a tire. And that's the only one I can think of. And I think it's a shame because we're getting get robbed here of a really good championship battle because both these guys could not afford to have a three second penalty in there. So you can basically, I think you're going to see Qatar is going to be something really weird where the two title contenders are going to be fifth and sixth or fourth and fifth. They're not going to be the guys racing at the front because they can't afford to. Yeah. They're, they're, they're literally going to have to start with, 
1.7 bar or something and pray that the temperature goes up. And if it's cold and they're not going to get that, and they're probably going to have to run it like, you know, seven, you know, eight, 1.8 bar and, you know, get the temperature in it that way. I mean, this is, it's kind of ridiculous. And I, I think you have to blame the powers that be Dorner or somebody because Michelin's said they've got a different tire that they want to test. They haven't been able to test it because none of the teams want to test it. Yeah, because the teams are too busy testing what they need to, in in what is a you know a unbelievably small amount of testing that they're allowed to do now with their race riders, which is the only quality testing really you're going to get. So, I mean, I lament the fact that there's so little testing. I get it on cost grounds and stuff, but it hasn't you know the cost ground argument doesn't seem to apply when they keep adding more races to the calendar every year. So, although okay, I get that that generates revenue as well, but you know, this it's a solvable problem, but you know, the reason I said it's not going to be one that's solved quickly is because of this issue around Michelin bringing the new front tire in, which is presumably being or has been designed for some time to address these increased loads, increased temperatures that are coming about with the modern generation of MotoGP bike, which has developed a lot in the last three or four seasons, let's be honest. Um, and the tire hasn't really had a chance in terms of its construction to keep a pace with that and we're starting to really bang into the rough end of that stick now so yeah but like you said Jim I mean they could alter that pressure limit I suppose and that might well be just enough to keep you know the wolf from the door until this new tire does come along uh, but whether that will happen of course is a wholly different uh, discussion but uh, again I'll try and grab you know an idea from I don't know, Simon Crafar or, you know, one of the pundits I bump into inevitably during the weekend and see what they got to say about it. Yep. Uh, so let's finish this up. Bastianini wins. Marquez, Alex, that is his second. Benyaya, third on the podium. Then Martin, Quattararo, Basecki, Morbidelli, Miller. Bitter did crash out of that spot. Then uh, it was DG Antonio, Marini, Vinales, Zarco. Mark Marquez got, a, got three points for finishing 13th. Augusto Fernandez, 14th in the last point, going to pull a Sparger out. So what that does to the championship is that it's a 14-point lead that Benyaya has over Martin. Bezeki is on 328, which puts him 89 points behind. I need to correct myself because last show I said Bezeki was out of it at 75 points behind, 79 points behind. That'd have been okay if I didn't not if it would if we did not have sprint races because i forgot to calculate the other 24 points that's available there so we have set we have 50 points plus another 24 points which is 74 points to play so bezeki is still not mathematically out of it but i mean he's not you know he, he, can, he can make up he's at 89 i guess he's at 89 now right behind so at 74 points bezeki's title hopes are now ditched even with the even with the sprint races yeah, um, yeah. so i was i called that one a, a weekend early so i missed that one i was still stuck on the fact we don't have sprint races <laughs> but it's a two-horse race benyaya versus martin with a tire problem so uh who knows what's going to happen to qatar we'll have to wait to see what how how, how that goes down this weekend and we'll have to see what we can do about that so the, the interesting thing that came i mean the, both the sprint for me although they didn't win but you know, the whole MotoGP weekend really was about Bastianini in the end, wasn't it? Because yeah. out of, out of uh, you know, what's been a total nightmare of a season, largely not his fault because of injury, although 
well, certainly the crash at Portimao was not his fault. And I forget what he did to his shoulder. He broke his shoulder in some way. He broke his shoulder in the crash with Marini in Portimao. Yeah. He broke the shoulder blade. Right. He then got involved in the, he created the accident in Catalonia that yes. damaged his wrist or hand. Yeah. Exactly. So some of it has been of his own making, but the main one, which was the shoulder injury, which is a nasty injury to come back from, particularly when you're riding the MotoGP bike. So you can understand why he's had the year that he's had. But the interesting thing this weekend, Jim, and again, we mustn't overrun much further, but he started to use a thumb brake for the rear brake this weekend. And suddenly he's in the mix. And well, more than in the mix. I mean, he probably, as you say, could have taken third, possibly even second in the sprint. I don't think he would have beaten Alex Marquez, but he he was clearly not risking doing anything silly to impede Banyai being on the podium. And then handsomely won the race out front. Okay, huge advantage being out front. But anyway, you still got to finish the race. Uh, where's that performance come from? Two things. He couldn't ride the bike the way he wanted to, to turn the bike. Because the rear Michelin's so grippy, he couldn't turn it. So the electrical, the the electronics guys changed the the engine braking map into a direction that he liked. He, they said, "Hey, if you do this and use the rear thumb brake, you're going to be able to ride like you want to." And as soon as they did that, it was magic. I mean, Simon was talking about how to get used to a thumb brake versus using it with your, you know, you've spent your life breaking with your right foot and now you're going to do it with your left thumb. And like in the sum of grand sum of two hours, he had it figured out, which I'm absolutely positively flabbergasted. Yeah. Yeah. Because this is going to sound stupid. And again, it's a, we shouldn't run over, but I think it's kind of relevant to it. When I started road racing, I came from dirt track, so I never had a front brake. So I started braking with three fingers on the brake because that just was natural. That seemed the right thing to do. And I went to like a road race school and they're like, oh, you got to use two fingers. And it took me over half a season of riding to finally figure out how to brake with just two fingers and make it work. So, to, I, I mean, okay, uh, we're talking about maybe racing. I think all total, we probably ran maybe 20 races in, in, a, in, a, in a, a season, all combined, all the different classes we ran and stuff. So, it took me like 12 races to figure out how to do it and be comfortable with it. It was just crazy. And to think that he's got a MotoGP bike and he's using his thumb, which is way more sensitive than what your foot is to the situation but it's disconnected from the feel that you would have and in two hours he's got it figured out running at the front I'm... never mind all the other stuff they're fiddling around with on the handlebars you know corner to corner straight to straight i mean pressing this button releasing that thing you know it's just mind-boggling they're like bloody fighter pilots these guys now aren't they with the amount of multi-tasking that they're doing yeah if you walk by and you bump into bashing you look at him and says jim says you're amazing because <laughs> <laughs> i think it yeah. is well, th- so the proof of the pudding now is going to be if that is what has kind of transformed him and his feeling on the bike, how does he get on in Qatar? How does he get on in Valencia? Because he could go on a rip now. Because he certainly went on a rip, you know, frequently in the last two seasons, didn't he? Uh, and he has great late race pace because he's so good at 
you know managing the rear tire and stuff that was his big kind of usp in the last few seasons wasn't it so he will have a material effect on the outcome of this championship now because you know martin you know you say well it's only 14 points but that's quite a big gap when banyas is um consistent as he is you know so and if bastianini starts taking the bigger points that doesn't help martin one little bit so this is all part of part of me thinking that Banyar is probably just about going to cling on to this. Just. There's going to be a cl- very close run thing. Yeah. Who do you want to win the championship, Jim? I mean, in your heart, who do you want to win? In my heart, I want to see Martin win. Mm. J- just because I think he's, he's, he's done so much to get there. He's, he's ridden incredibly the past, this past season. It took him a little bit to figure out how to be a MotoGP rider, I think. But he's got it figured out. And I, I, I love the story. I think the kid just tries hard. And, you know, he's done a lot to win, to do it. And he he's – and there's that whole story of do, being the first in the MotoGP era to win a title on a satellite team or, you know, a non-factory team, however you want to look at it. Um, mm, yeah, it would be a – yeah. Um, you know – Benyaya has a world title. I'm not going to try to take anything away from from that, but I don't necessarily rate Benyaya as good as I. I don't think Benyaya is as good as Martin in natural skill. And I don't have any room to sit here and criticize any of these guys. They're so much faster than I ever could have been on a motorcycle. But you just look at what Martin does throwing down pole laps, and he's transferred that into race winning races and the Thailand race on a tire that was pretty close to being shot. And he just held everybody off. I thought was, Hey, I just think Martins rode better this year than Ben Yaya. It probably comes down to, because it's motorsport and it's motorbikes and racing. I mean, Martin is the spectacular one out of the two, isn't he? Ben Yaya is just much more controlled uh, and a little bit, I, I would never use the word boring because if you stand trackside and watch any of these guys, that's the very last word that you would ever apply. But he's quite sort of methodical in the way that he goes about stuff, isn't he? Although, in fairness to him, I mean, he put down a great pole lap on the weekend and Martin crashed. So th- that's the yin and the yang between them, isn't it, really? They are really very, very different characters. And don't forget, they were teammates at Pramac, weren't they, for a season or two? I kind of tend to forget that. So they kind of come up through the similar path, and that might be partly what's fueled the, you know, the the real fire in the belly of Martin this year to sort of say, "I'll show you, Ducati." So this intervention, let's call it by Bastianini, coming back to him, is incredibly well timed, and you do wonder how much of a coincidence that is. You know, if Ducati said to him, "Look, you ride under pressure. What are you going to do to turn it around?" And he said, well, "This is what I need." And if they've given him something like this thumb brake, if that if they have if his engineers have said, look, that will be the thing that gets the bike moving in the way that you need it to, and they've done it for him, and as you say, he's adapted so quickly and suddenly turned it around. But of course, this will all be for nothing if he's you know, in fifteenth place in Qatar. It could be a one-off, but I doubt it. I mean, Bastianini is a very good rider, and I kind of feel a little bit for Ducati on this one because they've landed in a sort of KTM-ish situation where they've got too many good riders fighting for too few. But well. There's a lot of bikes out there, but in terms of the the works seat, they've got this nice problem to have, but it's still a problem, whichever way you cut it. Anyway, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, I think that's the race weekend. I think that covers everything that we wanted to. Remember, any questions, comments, concerns, email us, 
motopod at motopodcast.com. Rich is heading to Qatar on Wednesday for hopefully some great interviews and whatnot. I'm going to be out of here because it's Thanksgiving week here in the States. So come Friday, I'm heading to the East Coast for vacation. And we'll be back. We'll find some time during that week to chat and create another show and tell everybody what happens from Qatar, hopefully. And I think that covers it all, right, Rich? I think it does. Yeah, we'll look forward to coming back and chatting about uh, yeah Qatar because we've got, a, you know, this is the final triple header now. So, yeah, all action. All action. Ready, folks. Ride safe with your road skins, and we'll see you all next week. Cheerio. Bye.